if this thing goes through, random purchasing Simon & Schuster, 70% one company. That's madness. Um, and here it's the same thing where the profits are going to accrue to the very limited number of publishers and then the suppliers effectively won't get paid. I mean, there's, there's no future for writers in this circumstance. Welcome to Season 2 of Agent Provocateur. To kick it off, we have a special episode. Usually, we like to have two or three pieces, but today we've decided to devote the entire show to a single issue, which is the American Department of Justice is trying to block the merger of Penguin Random House and Simon & Schuster. Today I have Jonathan Tepper, who's the author of The Myth of Capitalism, and uh, Elaine Adour, who is the author of The Handover. It seems to me that the Department of Justice is siding with authors and other publishers, including HarperCollins, which is the reported underbidder for Simon & Schuster. What are the odds they will succeed when they failed with AT&T and Time Warner not that long ago? It's interesting to me that PRH hired the same attorneys that fought the last one, because I guess obviously they think they can they can beat this the way that AT and T did. What do you guys think about that, uh, Jonathan? I'll start with you. Sure, Sam, you're my agent, and uh, I wrote the book Myth of Capitalism, uh, which came out about two years ago, and uh, it was basically about industry concentration and how industries go from many players down to very few. And during the writing process, you and I were joking around that we were going to see the Big Five become the Big Four, and eventually the Big Four probably become the Big Three. And so, sure enough, we didn't have to wait long for that to happen. Um, the, the historically, the the Department of Justice and the FTC would rarely block mergers and generally only if it was uh, down you know, to, to four players. Um, and th- there's quite a lot of research uh, by John uh, Quoka, which shows that when you get below six players in an industry, that's when prices start going up and you end up with all sorts of other harms. Um, in, in this case, this is a what's called a, a horizontal merger, which means that direct competitors are merging with each other. Um, the Time Warner deal was slightly different, which was a vertical merger where you had essentially content and distribution. It wasn't just uh, distribution merging with distribution or content merging with content. Um, so that one, I think, was is slightly different in the economic arguments sort of for and against are, are different. But one of the things that's um, interesting about this one while it clearly is anti-competitive, the main grounds uh, reading the the, the, uh, the case are that it's going to uh, reduce payments to authors. Um, and, and that is certainly novel uh, in the sense that the government's rarely blocked mergers because of harms to, to workers. In this case, obviously, the authors are the workers. Um, it, generally, they, they blocked them due to the fear of, of higher prices for books. And if you read the, the, the complaint, that's not really what the government's focusing on. So I think that's that's quite novel in, in this case and fits a lot of the evidence that you know uh, large dominant firms, when they merge, tend to suppress wages. So it's not just wages, uh, because most of the people who will be affected by this are not people who work directly for these corporations, but for people who are offering 
a supply of something to these corporations, which brings me to the magic word, Sam, monopsony. <laughs> so this is an argument not about uh, restraint of trade in the normal sense, in which uh, the worry is that prices will increase to consumers. This is an argument that says, because there will be market dominance, unbelievable market dominance, I mean, the numbers are just bloody horrible. Those who supply to the new merged entity will find their prices forced down in the most egregious way. And that, of course, is exactly what's happened to writers as a succession of these mergers have taken place. Looked up some numbers last night. From 2018 in Canada, the uh, average income for authors went down to 9,000 bucks a year. Uh, which was a 78% drop from 1998. Uh, same situation in the UK uh, and almost as bad in the United States. So before this merger took place, because of the subsequent merger or the earlier mergers. Um, that, that is with Penguin and before that. Yeah, and Doubleday Double and blah, blah, blah. I mean, the, the whole accumulation of mergers since the 1990s, which has placed... Bertelsmann uh, as the utterly dominant figure, um, writers have suffered tremendously and, and it doesn't look to me as if it's ever going to get any better. So, you know, <laughs> a 78% drop in income, I mean, there's, there's no future for writers in this circumstance. So this is, in fact, a cultural argument as much as an anti-competitive argument. No, it's still an anti-competitive argument. Monopsony is a competitive idea. It says that suppliers in a chain are suddenly disadvantaged because there's only one buyer or only two buyers in the marketplace. So it, it's still an economic argument, not a cultural one in my view. I, I do agree that it's uh, economic. I think it's it's novel in the sense that generally uh, there's, there was a revolution essentially. It was started um, after uh, Robert Bork uh, wrote uh, quite a few articles and uh, a book and you know, put forward the idea of the consumer welfare standard, which is that the only thing that mattered was not um, the concentration of economic power or you know, any of these other adverse uh, effects that happen. They're anti-competitive with mergers. The only thing that mattered was price. And as long as prices stayed low, then you could merge as much as you wanted. And that was really the argument that worked put forward. And so that ended up becoming widely accepted uh, by the judiciary over time and uh, by the the, um, the DOJ with the merger guidelines that were changed in 1982. And so for a long time, as long as you could claim uh, plausibly or, or even implausibly that prices were going to stay low, it didn't really matter what other harms were occurring. There's been quite a lot of research in the last couple of years that uh, a monopsony essentially is uh, it creates all sorts of harms that are not necessarily in price. So you could uh, you know, keep the price of, of a book low, and then you basically just don't pay the author, and you don't pay the printers, and you know, so you gain more power effectively by right. keeping prices low. This is one way that Amazon's uh, gotten an enormous amount of power. Um, is basically, if you, as long as you promise to keep prices low, it doesn't matter what your market share is, and so there's uh, there's there's that, and the fact that this has been challenging, or being challenged essentially on the sort of monopsony grounds, um, is interesting. That's not really something that that's been happening in the courts. Um, and I think that it's a, a positive step because uh, generally what happens is um, in the, the meat industry, for example, 
it, uh, but it happens in many industries is, you know, the, the independent farmers basically don't get paid the right uh, amount for their beef um, and for, for their chicken. And so the margin then accrues to the, to the, the oligopoly of meat companies. Um, and here it's the same thing where the profits are going to accrue to the very limited number of publishers and then the suppliers effectively won't get paid. There are two books um, that I think are very interesting. Um, you know, one was very influential, cornered uh, by Barry Lynn, um, and that is, you know, he has had quite a lot of impact in D.C., but there's another one that's gotten uh, very little attention um, and, you know, I think prophetic. It was called Market Domination by Stephen Hannaford. And uh, Hannaford basically points out that what you end up with is in the same way you have uh, monopolies, you have um, monopsonies, right, where you end up with a very limited number of players. And generally, you don't have one company that controls it. So if you call, talk about an oligopoly, he was saying that you can also talk about oligopsonies, you know, which essentially is where there's this tacit coordination of the oligopoly not to to, right. to bid on, on beef or not to bid on authors. And I think that it's that, you know, it's a, a clunky term, but the oligopsony really is, I think, what's happening industry after industry and what would certainly be bigger in the publishing industry. And we know, in fact, that in the Canadian experience, the whole purpose of uh, the mergers was to acquire the right to beat down the price of acquisitions. So there were agreements within the um, McClellan and Stewart uh, takeover, for example, by what is now Penguin Random House, that there would be no uh, competing bids among the um, imprints that were controlled by Penguin Random House. Previously, uh, within a, a integrated system, the different imprints were allowed to counter bid uh, against each other to get a project that they particularly wanted. That thing died in about 2012, and the result is a collapse in advances uh, and probably in royalties as well. Well, that's Would something you agree, that Sam? The, the Department of Justice said specifically that while Penguin Random House has said that after acquiring Simon & Schuster, it would keep the bidding kind of, it would keep a, um, a level of uh, playing field for agents and authors. But um, then how would that said, work? Yeah, then they said, but there's no guarantee how long this is going to last or, you know, uh, what this really means. People oh, we know promises. it won't last because, you know, these, these imprints within the Canadian system have already said we're not going to do that anymore. And they have maintained that position since at least, what, 2012? Um, I don't, I can't imagine what, what there would be as an enforcement mechanism to make sure competitive bidding takes place within an organization. Mm -hmm. There, uh, there's quite a lot of evidence from the United States, Canada, Europe that uh, cartels uh, can and do coordinate to restrict prices. You know, to sort of raise prices, and often not to poach each other's workers. You know, and to, to do all sorts of things. And uh, when the the authorities find these out they tend to prosecute. The problem is that the estimates are that only like one in five of these agreements are actually caught. And so there's clearly an enormous amount of uh, collusion within cartels and oligopolies that's not caught. And then the, the other issue is that you don't really need to have any explicit form of organization, you know, for these uh, effects to happen. And so um, you find, you know, in some industries where the competitors will all follow the price leader. So the dominant company will then raise prices once a year and then all the smaller players raise it within the next week or two. And and so you don't even need to, you know, pick up the phone and, and call. Um, but And likewise, with uh, suppression of wages or, or not competing on, uh, you know, 
for for bids, you know, we've seen this in, in the United States, for example, when it comes to forestry and lumber, right? Like some of the very big paper companies just don't want to com uh, compete on on bids. And so you can end up with a very similar sort of tacit uh, collusion that doesn't even have to be explicit. And I think that's sort of what ends up happening when you end up with very few players is that you can have essentially sort of what they call conscious parallelism where people just follow each other's conduct without even having to pick up the phone and call your competitor. If this thing goes through, random purchasing Simon & Schuster, uh, they, the new entity will be publishing 30% of all titles published in the United States and 70% of general and literary fiction. 70% one company. That's madness. Just think about it, Sam. If you're trying to pitch and you fail in your pitch uh, to that entity, where do you go? Well, this is the your, thing. Your that, alternatives are, you know, down to zip. It seems like a, a lot of this is about having the efficiencies of a larger company, which means like laying off staff and reducing your costs so that you have this illusion of profitability, right, when you merge companies. But the problem is when you, we lose editors, there's every time we lose an editor, that's somebody that I might have, who might have had a taste, uh, a certain kind of aesthetic taste for a book, like a novel, uh, that I could have said, I have this novel that's a little strange. And they'd say, no, it sounds quirky and perfect for me. I mean, and now the, 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 the more and more consolidated this decision-making gets, I think the harder it's going to be for agents and for authors to bring in those, those books. And to be honest, those are often the books that are important to culture. Like literature often comes in from the margins. Often, always. 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 Well, it's interesting that if you look at uh, Hollywood, for example, you know, which is a, a similar industry in the sense that, you know, it's, you're, you're producing art, artistic content uh, for the, the masses. Um, it's, you know, slightly different, obviously, in the sense that you have a studio system also oligo oligopolistic, um, you know, and also it's like books. It tends to be a, a hit driven business with long tails. But, you know, Disney's now gotten to 50 percent of the U.S. Uh, box office. There was a period in the United States when distributors were quite separate from those who are making movies. Uh, that no longer is the case. So you now have a, vi a vertical integration that has never been seen before. And on top of that, a collapse of the number of competitors. So, I mean, it, it the United States has turned its back on its own ideas of economic efficiency, uh, which you know, date back to the turn of the last century when the trusts were first busted in the United States for exactly these reasons. There's a fantastic book by Tim Wu called The Master Switch, and it looks at uh, various technologies, whether it's uh, radio, telegraph, uh, TV, uh, movies, uh, and the internet. And the, the move is almost always goes from basically these are things that hobbyists use, you know, that's like doing short films, you know, Thomas Edison and the Lumiere brothers, and then it ends up consolidating down into a few players. And, uh, you know, ultimately the government uh, often steps in to stop further consolidation and then often ends up being captured by the companies that they're regulating to prevent further competition. And, you know, the, the, the Hollywood uh, studio system, they used to control all the um, distribution and they could basically, you know, have one great hit and, you know, five other awful movies and they would, they could force those down the throats of the. Yeah. Um, have to buy the, the other side of midnight. <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly. An old story. Yeah. 
and and so uh, they, they then banned that in the 1950s and that was one of the things that uh ended up creating essentially a, a much freer system where you ended up with a lot of independent films in the late 60s and, and uh, 70s and infor- unfortunately the us is uh, getting rid of um the got rid of the consent decrees and you know moving essentially back towards the the studio system you know with uh, vertical control and and so i think that you'll end up with uh, you know a similar uh system where the studios dictate what, what what there is you end up with less diversity uh, in terms of the the output you know it's all sequels of comic books uh, and you know and then bad movies being shoved down um, the, the throats of consumers okay um so one last question uh most of the media has covered the u.s impact uh, but this deal will affect publishing throughout the entire english-speaking world including canada and the uk i know elaine you've written the book about canada <laughs> Um, I haven't done the, the work. The on UK launched an UK. investigation of this merger in March. They have the same problem, and they're not happy either. But they're not suing anybody. No, no, they're investigating, and I think that investigation will lead to an order. I may be wrong, but uh, there's nothing in it for the UK to allow this to go through. Okay, so... Um... Any any final thoughts? I mean, I, I it's yes, Sam. Where's the government of Canada in all of this? Where where is our Canadians current know. minister of of Canadian heritage uh, arguing about whether this is or is not a good deal for this country? I mean, have you heard a single word? Have you seen a single word in print as to whether or not the government of Canada might want to step in here, which it has the legal right to do? I think the Association of Canadian Publishers is against it, and they've issued something, but I don't know that it's gone further than that. Right. And I, and certainly our Competition Bureau <laughs> has not set out to examine the question. Even if they had, we wouldn't know, because the way they do their business is in secret. Well, Welcome yeah. to Canada. And also, I mean, Canada allowed the... Um, the Harlequin sale, and as you know, the McClellan Stewart sale. So uh, there seems all of the be, above. Yeah, there seems to be a kind of tacit compliance with whatever the Americans allow. Which also it's seems, again the same argument that price matters and monopsony is not an issue. So you know, the only way the Competition Bureau is going to step forward here is if it moves itself off from that very simple argument that only price matters and looks at how a market can be controlled when the suppliers only have one buyer. And, and, and obviously, if the Americans take that route, there might be some pressure within the government of Canada to actually consider that as a problem. And that would be nice. Jonathan, any, any final thoughts from you? Well, I, I think that these uh, historical waves take a very long time, and it's like a pendulum, and the you know they swing too far one way, and then sometimes swing too far back another. Um, in the '70s, almost no mergers were going through in the U.S., um, and and that was really what led to the counter revolution. But we're now at the complete opposite end, where almost no mergers were ever blocked, and I think that what we're starting to see is this, the pendulum swing back, um, and you're seeing that with the appointment of Lena Khan and Tim Wu, and these are people who. I think are very thoughtful, um, but completely disagree with the status quo. And that's why they're so hated by the um, uh, economists and lawyers, you know, who push these mergers. Um, and uh, I, th- I think it's a wonderful thing uh, to see some change. Great. Well, um, who knows where this is going to go, but it didn't sound very optimistic. <laughs> actually, so I, I'm optimistic that they're actually taking it up. I think that's that's huge. 
So that that is the cause for a celebration. That's Absolutely. True. Well, I think it's very good. Good. Well, thank you guys for your time today, and um, take care. I'll see you guys soon. Toodaloo. Thanks. Bye. That's a wrap, folks. Thanks so much for joining us for season two. Thanks to our guests and, of course, to Andrew Kaufman, our producer. If you like our podcast, please like us and review us wherever you listen. And also look for us on Substack. We'll be back next week.